Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 39. And in many ways, this is a continuation of last week, of Psalm 38. And here we again see David is lamenting of his sin and the consequences that have fallen upon him. So if you remember from last week, David is at the brink of death, really. He has no clue how much time he has left, but he's incredibly sick and miserable. Well, at this point, we know he's repentant. He has ultimately submitted himself to the will of God, and he has incredible hope in his God, and yet those consequences he has endured have simply not gone away yet. Well, evidently, God is still desiring to teach David much while he's learning under the discipline of the Lord. Well, the outcome of this is that David learns a really vitally important truth, and that is that life is a vapor. The Hebrew word he uses here is havel, and many of you might be familiar with that with a sermon series that Matt Miller preached on Ecclesiastes a number of years ago, but you're going to hear that word come up several times today. It simply means vanity. It could also be translated as futility or pointlessness or meaninglessness and so on and so forth. So I hope that's a brief encouragement to you today. I'm teasing, by the way. What it describes, though, is that there's, there's really this reality that we walk about on earth every single day where creation is just subjected to futility because of the curse of sin. In other words, sin has brought all of these consequences, and rather than things working as they should, we just live in a broken and distorted world. There's this sort of chaos to life. This is really the heart behind statements like, the good die young, but also why you see just a continued reversal of things that uh, life just upends itself, right? You, you might get fired for doing your job correctly. You might be wronged and never see justice in this life. You might work all of your life simply to retire and then a week into retirement, die, right? There's this aspect of life that is almost futile. Well, David picks up on this idea in this psalm and ultimately He's doing it to show the lesson that the Lord desired to teach him. And that really is quite simple, that life is fleeting. It is here today and gone tomorrow. Your accomplishments will die with you. All of your hard-earned money will go to somebody else's hands. And even if you try to live without regard to the consequences of sin, beloved, even that will prove to be futility in the end because it just brings more pain and misery. All it does is add sorrow, in other words, to your already short life. Well, despite how bleak and hopeless that sounds at first glance, or might sound to your ears as you first hear it, recognizing the futility of life is actually a thing of incredible hope. And the reason I say that is that it forces us to ask questions, hard questions, right? If life is meaningless, if there's this futility to life, why are we here to begin with? Well, David gives us an answer to that today. And so now again, turn with me to Psalm 39. We're going to see David actually wrestle with this reality that all of us are really faced with if we are painfully honest. So notice in verse 1, David opens up this psalm, ironically enough, by speaking about this vow of silence he makes. 
Now, there's a bit of fear behind this vow, and I want you to understand that, but I want you to notice why. If you look at the text, you say that he's not really worried about the fact that his enemies are going to twist his words and use them against him. David already has people that do that anyways. What he's worried about is sinning with his words. And you and I can likely resonate that with a bit, can't we, right? I mean, you and I know just as well as everybody else that we have all sorts of different thoughts that pour through our brains on a daily basis. And if the filter were removed and all that stuff came pouring out, as soon as you thought it, that if you didn't have time to submit it to the word of God or even to think through it, it just kind of comes out as this raw emotional sewage, doesn't it? Well, that's the idea here. David is not a perfect man. Everybody knows this about him, but he knows this as well. And he knows full well the thoughts that come to his mind. Some of them, in fact, are just wicked. And so he makes a vow to keep silent. He figures it's better that he remain completely silent than to let a sin or word of sin slip out. Well, again, the reason for this is relatively simple. David knows the tongue is producing or capable of producing all sorts of evil. And he fears he will do just that, but more so that he will do that before wicked people. And so what does he mean by that? Well, essentially, he doesn't want to give them the reason to blaspheme. That's his sole concern here. Notice he says in verse 2, he refrained from speaking, though. But what was the result? That his sorrow grew all the more. Now, some of your translations will say David refrained from speaking even of the good things. And while that might be in mind here, the reality is that the emphasis in the text just doesn't on the you know, what his words are saying, but rather what the result was, what it produced. So he's saying that instead of something being produced which is qualitatively good, it actually had the opposite effect. It brought more trouble his way. So David thought in the beginning, if I refrain from speaking, I would not sin, I will not add to my sorrows. But as he sat in silence and he's consumed by all of his thoughts, his agony just multiplied. In other words, it had the opposite effect. Well, the point of this is not to say that David needed to find some trusted confidence that he could pour out all of his sinful speech to, but rather, he went well beyond what was good. His pain and and misery grew the whole time. His thoughts continued to expand. He tried to ignore it and to suppress it, but everything just simply bubbled up to the surface, and he could no longer contain himself. Well, that's what we find in in verse 3 here. Notice what he says, my heart was hot within me, and while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Notice he says his heart was hot within him. He's contemplating the discipline of the Lord here, and this fire is just burning within him. And so what he's saying is that in in his silence, he's provoked to think about his situation all the more. He can't escape it. In his contemplation of it, he's provoked to break that silence all the more even. The more he thought about his situation, the more painful it became. The more painful it became, the more he thought about his situation. And so you can see it's just this kind of brutal, nasty cycle of never-ending pain and misery that he just can't help but think about. But then it all comes bubbling out, doesn't it? Well, he breaks that silence. He finally speaks. And the remainder of what this psalm contains is the heart of what he's saying. Well, you have a man who has realized the true frailty and the true vanity of life. In a word that comes up shortly, in a couple of points in this psalm, is that David recognizes that it is all Havel. It is all futility. Well, as we move through the remainder of this psalm, I want you to simply keep this 
in the back of your minds that everything David is saying here is flowing from this reality of Havel. It flows from a place of seeing that there is a, a pointlessness to pain and a tragedy even to human existence because we are simply here today and gone tomorrow. Life is, as the scriptures put it, a vapor. And life as we know it is a seemingly endless series of pitfalls and struggles and miseries and hardships and more. And while we might have much joy in this life, we have many things that might distract us in this life. The reality at hand is that when tragedy strikes, when hardship strikes, all of that goes away, doesn't it? We seemingly wonder why. And we can't help but wonder that because I think we're built that way. But just to illustrate that, we we think of the futility behind it, but just to illustrate that, think of the American dream. Now, you all might define that slightly differently from one person to the next, but in short, the whole goal of American existence is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And yet, as we seek to gain those very things, life has a simple way of showing us that they are always transient. They are always temporary. They are always failing us. They fail to sustain us when we are faced with a serious illness. They fail to make us any kind of happy when all of a sudden our, one of our loved ones dies. They fail to bring us contentment when our friend betrays us, when our house gets destroyed, when we lose all of our money. They all go away. But even if we remain happy, healthy, and wealthy, no matter what, that inevitable day comes for us all where we must go down into the grave. In other words, when that day comes, all of that is Havel. All of it is vanity. It cannot stave off the power of death. And so you must come to reconcile with the fact that if life is just a vapor, and if you think there's somehow no more meaning or significance behind it all simply than to chase after whatever that fleeting feeling of happiness might give you, at the end of all your days, you will inevitably realize it is all Havel. It is all pointless. Well, David is painfully aware of that fact here, and the reason for this is quite simple. He's dying. He's at death's door, and he recognizes that he's, he's a king. He's exceedingly rich. He has everything he could ever dream of in this life and more, and yet none of that brings him fulfillment as he's under the discipline of the Lord. He's sitting on his deathbed with regret, and his money, possessions, power, influence, none of that brings him happiness. But in spite of that, in spite of that, he has one unfailing hope, and that's God himself. So look with me now at verses 4 through 6. We're going to start to see all of this unfold where David finally comes to speak on the futility of life as a general principle. Notice he starts in verse 4 saying, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my deaths or my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is mere Havel. That's the word in the Hebrew here. Every man at his best is a mere Havel. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to again in verse 4 is that David is finally speaking here, but notice to whom he actually speaks. As he recognizes his frailty, he comes to the one he knows can actually give him an answer to the burning questions of his heart. Well, his burning question is a simple one, isn't it? It's one that all who see their mortality ask, Lord, how much time do I actually have left? 
How close to the grave am I? Well, here he sits as a man, a frail old man, wounded with grief and physical pain because of his sins. That word transient really is an incredibly good way to convey what he's actually thinking through here. He knows it is but one breath to the next, which might carry him into the grave. And there's this bit of anxiety and urgency and even fear here. And yet out of this desperate cry for an answer, David is given an incredible glimpse. And I truly do mean that, an incredible glimpse into just how short life truly is. How just how frail even the mightiest of men is in the eyes of the Lord. Well, he speaks to his own days being as hand breaths here, and that's just the width of your palm. So he says, it's that short. My days, all of my years are merely the width of my palm. You can imagine a man on his deathbed looking back at his life and simply marveling at how quickly all of it went by. Distant memories flood his mind, and as quickly as they come, they depart from him. The grave is all he can think about. He knows his end is near. And if his life is short in his sight, he knows or he thinks at least, how much shorter is my life in the eyes of God? Surely if David can see his own life flash before his eyes and he sees how insignificant he is in the grand scheme of all things, he knows that life is truly insignificant before the eternal God, at least such a transient or temporary life. God has always been, God will always be, and David recognizes that even as man maybe makes it to a ripe old age, it is nothing in comparison to the one who stands outside of time itself. But it is this very fact that actually leads him to recognize the fact that every single man is a vapor. Every single man is Havel, in other words. And so picture, if you will, in your mind, the person who is the epitome of strength, they are the epitome of health and wealth. They have life, in other words, to the fullest. They have everything that we say we don't want, but in our heart of hearts, we actually do desire. They are the perfect picture of mankind at their most ideal state. Well, David says, Havel, a vapor. Their life is a mere breath. It is here today and gone tomorrow. So that world record-breaking athlete, Havel, the world-famous musician, Havel. The social media influencer, Havel. The savvy business tycoon, Havel. The multi-billionaire who buys up whatever he pleases, Havel. The powers that be across the political spectrum, mere vapor. All the who's who that we lust after and desire what they have and in some sense who they are, Havel. Vapor, it's all futility, David says. Their life is here today and gone tomorrow like smoke in the wind. And hear me on this, but this is also your life and this is my life. That's the sobering reality of every man, woman, or child, even if we like to ignore that. No matter how much you and I try to hold off the power of death and the futility of it all, inevitably we see this. It always comes for us in the end. No matter what we try to do to make life simply pleasant in every single way and hedge our bets, we always face hardship. Always. No matter how much we exercise, eat right, find success, minimize our risk, the common denominator of all men is the grave. But at the heart of accepting this reality is wisdom. 
at the heart of accepting this reality is hope. Now, why do I say that? Because that hope and joy is something that you find can never be attached to this life. If it is all fleeting, if it is all temporary, if it is all going away, the only hope and joy we can find is in God himself. Now, David starts to bring this to light here in verse 6. He shows us the true frailty of life. Notice he says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and he does not even know he will gather them. Well, notice how quickly David just simply, he demolishes any sense that we can place our trust and hope in this life or the things of this life. First, he says that every man walks about as a mere phantom, not just some men, but every man. What he means by this is that all of humanity, every single man, woman, or child is like a shadow that's being cast from a statue. And so the statue is the the likeness of the real thing, but humanity, because their days are short, is like the shadow from that statue. In other words, what he's describing here is that man gives the appearance or the, 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 the appearance of something that is lasting, but all of their days are always fading away from them. Like the shadow, it's visible from the light of the sun, but once the sun sets, that shadow dissolves into the darkness. It's no longer there. They are somewhere between life and death. They are like a phantom reality or a ghost, if you will. They always have one foot in the grave. And yet he goes on to say, surely they make an uproar for nothing. Well, what he means by this is that even though they are like this shadow, they are always moving about in this seemingly endless series of pursuits. They're self-defeating pursuits even. They're always ever busy at the rat race of life where like the mouse chasing after the morsel of cheese, they never grab a hold of it, but they keep on trying. Well, think of it like a hamster on a wheel. They get on the wheel and they spin and spin and spin, but they never get anywhere. Well, they struggle, they compete to get ahead, but in the end, they find that just like everybody else, life is a vapor. All of their pursuits were a vapor too. When the sun sets, when the shadow of their life inevitably fades into the darkness, just like every single person, their achievements, their goals, their hopes, their dreams, all of them are too Havel. All of them fade. Well, then he moves on to speak about the same reality with wealth. He says in verse 6, at the end of it, he amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This is one of those verses that tends to cut past all of our pretenses, isn't it? It shows where our hearts are. Well, the reality, we we know this intrinsically, is we we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to hedge our bets or to uh, accumulate money or things. But when we die, none of it goes to the grave. I mean, sure, you could bury it with you, but what's that going to do? We're going to leave it in our will for somebody else who hasn't worked a day in their life for it, but we don't even know if that person will get it in the end, do we? He's not saying money's evil, beloved. Don't get me wrong. David's exceedingly rich. What he is saying, though, is that all of us, that reality that all of us know that we tend to ignore is that even our wealth and possessions are a havel. They are fleeting. Again, David's a man at the end of his life, and he's lived an incredible life in many ways. Not only much hardship, but much joy. But when he's on his deathbed, he looks back at all of his earthly treasures and trinkets, and he says, it too 
is Havel. It too is vanity. It is vanity of vanities. It is all just a shadow swiftly being consumed by the darkness as the sun sets. But understand, this is not the rambling of a dying man, a man who's lost all hope, in other words. These are statements of incredible wisdom, and he's able to finally see this and actually grab a hold of it simply because he's dying. In other words, it was when he became aware of his mortality that he saw the truth. He finally became all the more aware of the fact that everything we tend to chase after in reality doesn't matter all that much. This is why in verses 4 through 5, he cries out, right? He says, Lord, make me to know the end of my days. He's not expressing some nihilist statement where he says, all of life is meaningless, and then you get swallowed up by the void. No, he's not a man of despair. He's a man who sets his sights on what actually matters. And so he says, Lord, make me know my days. He's expressing the same thing Solomon does at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in other words. So if you're familiar with the book, you know in Ecclesiastes, he spends nearly 11 chapters describing all of the ways that life is just simply filled with this reality of Havel. He has searched out wisdom, he has tested everything, and he's seen that everything under the sun, that's everything in all creation, is vanity. It's subjected to futility, in other words. But at the end of it, Solomon calls on the people to do two simple things. Rejoice and remember. I believe Solomon actually may have gotten that from the psalm. We'll get to the rejoice portion in a little bit. I know right now we're not quite there. But for now, notice how oddly similar this section is that we've been covering is to Solomon's conclusion. I'm just going to read it for you. But in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 6 through 8 and 13 and 14, he says, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. And these are just poetic ways of him describing somebody dying, whether they're old or young or in tragedy or in due time. And then he says, the dust will return to the earth just as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Again, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that perhaps after years of foolish living and painful consequences, Solomon, at the end of his life, came to a study one day, and he sat to contemplate it all that he may have come to this psalm. And as he's musing over the various ways he has seen the futility of life and even his own life, he sees the inspired words of his father, Lord, make me to know my end. What is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man is, a, is at best a mere havel. What we see David expressing in this psalm is much the same as what Solomon expresses. Life is short. Life is filled with futility in many ways. And so he cries out and says, let me live out those days with wisdom. Let me see how frail life is and how uncertain the times have always been, not just now, but always. 
not so I can wallow in despair and confusion, but so I can look all the more to my one true hope. Let me not look to life which fades as a shadow, nor empty pursuits which go down to the grave with me, nor even to the vastness of my wealth which will go to somebody else. Let me look upon you, O Lord. His sole defining hope and purpose is God. And so I simply ask, is, is this the case for every one of us? Beloved, it is so incredibly easy for us to be fooled into thinking that our hope and purpose can be found in this life somehow. We can be fooled into thinking our life will be filled with long, healthy, and even happy days, but we're not even guaranteed to make it home today. We can likewise be filled or fooled into believing all of our efforts or pursuits at success or notoriety or influence or power or whatever else that you desire, whatever else we spin our wheels trying to achieve will bring us happiness or fulfillment. Perhaps worst of all, we're, we're all easily swayed by the lie that amassing treasure on earth will somehow bring us security and comfort and ease. But in the end, he says, all of these things are passing as a shadow all as a shadow. What is it that you live for? Is it that which David calls Havel? Is it the vapor, the transient, the temporary? Or is it as one who is characterized by the wisdom of counting the days, knowing they are short, that you might live with ultimate delight and joy in your creator? Well, this is what David now moves to in the final seven verses of this psalm. So look with me now, starting in verse 7. We see David actually start to make a series of requests to God himself. And it's all born out of this reality of recognizing the futility of life in one sense, or striving after all these things that are transient. Once more, he recognizes it, but this time with reference to sin. Verses 7 through 11. As we come to verse 7, he actually makes a major turning point in this psalm. He says, oh, now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. What was bleak has now turned to light. He has patiently endured through the discipline of the Lord, all in silence. And yet, as we saw, that even proved to be a futility or an exercise in futility. He pours forth a series of statements on the fleeting and temporary nature of life itself. And yet, underneath it, this futility of striving after all the things of this age. And yet, from this simple observation... That all of life is Havel, as he says, there's a wellspring of hope and a simple plea. Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Well, David looks out, he sees nothing in this life can bring him the hope and deliverance from his discipline. Life can't bring him fulfillment. He knows the grave is near to all men. His pursuits, his accomplishments cannot bring him fulfillment and hope. He knows that they fade just as quickly. His wealth and possessions, Havel, none of it will last. But more importantly, here's a man who knows none of it will deliver. None of it will save. What do I wait for? My hope is in you, O Lord. He knows that God brought him under discipline. It must be God, therefore, who brings him out of discipline. He knows that God saves. There's no other deliverer. Everything else is altogether useless, he says. 
So as he looks out and sees that everything under the sun is Havel, it is vanity of vanities, he sees the one thing that isn't, and it is God. This is a beautiful hope for the man, right? This can never fade. This can never be fleeting as a shadow. The one thing in life and death that will never prove to be futility is God. It is that which is above the sun. We are finite, and that just simply means we're creatures living in the creator's world. We have a beginning, we have an end, and yet God does not. To put it as bluntly as possible, we all live on borrowed time. We breathe in borrowed air. We live on borrowed land, and our hearts only beat at the permission of the sovereign one. Everything in existence today will be burned up and destroyed by fire. But the earth will be made new. David recognizes this. He says, he's looking out and he sees nothing that he sets his eyes out on will give him hope. It will not be part of this new creation. It's all going away. And so in his mind, why place hope and trust in that which will be burned up and that which cannot deliver? The point of David is much the same as Solomon's. Remember your creator in all of your days. Fear God and keep his commandments when all is said and done. Everything, even our vain pursuit of sin, is Havel. We now see him turning to this point in verses 8 through 11. He says, deliver me, that is, snatch me out, or deliver me from all of my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not even open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because the opposition of your hand, or because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. Notice the first request he makes here is quite simple. Deliver me from all my sins. And the word for deliver, again, here speaks of this act of God actually snatching him away. Here he has in mind both the sin and its consequences. The reason is quite simple. It goes back to what he requested earlier as he's thinking of the wicked men He does not want to be the reproach of fools. In other words, he's, again, concerned about how this represents God. He doesn't want them to blaspheme God. In essence, he says, Lord, I do not want these men to think wrongly of you. You are a forgiving God. You are a covenanting God. You are a loving God. Will you not restore me? Well, the reason for this is David's actually received the instruction he was meant to receive. He learned wisdom through the discipline. We see this clearly in verse 9. If you would look down with me, notice what he says. I become mute. I do not even open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Here he resigns himself to silence yet again, but this time it's a bit different. It's not a foreboding silence as it was earlier. It's an accepting silence. He has accepted the consequences. He does not offer a word of complaint against his accuser because he knows his accuser is God. But more to the point, he actually knows he's done everything to deserve it. He sees his consequences, and he sees them as fair. He is a creature. God is a creator. He is the one in sin. God is not. Therefore, the punishment is just and right. So rather than complain or refuse to accept the consequences, he abides in them. But this is the place where he actually recognizes he can and should ask for restoration. That's the incredible thing about this is once he confesses sin and once true repentance is shown, he knows that he's in a place where he can actually ask God to just ease up a bit. God knows when he's truly there. God knows when you and I are truly there. 
Well, then notice the second request in verse 10. He asks that the Lord would remove his punishment from him. Again, he's highlighting that his sin has brought him near to the point of death. But the important thing for us to take, or take note of here is that this request comes in light of the fact that he's actually submitted himself to the Lord. He's actually learned the instruction that discipline was intended to bring. He, he knows, I am just a finite man. But more than this, he's learned the futility of rebellion and sin. And we see this clearly in verse 11. Right? He says, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume him as a moth. What is precious to him? Surely every man is mere Havel. Vapor. Sin, David says, brings nothing but rebuke. Part of that rebuke, he even says, is the removal of the things that we find most precious to us. Again, remember in Psalm 38, David knew he was under the discipline of the Lord. This is all within that context. He knew there was no shadow of a doubt in his mind. So in that time of actual discipline, this is a hard, hard truth for us to swallow in many ways because it means that it can involve actually losing what we love the most. What's in your mind when I say that? What's the one thing you feel you could not live without if the Lord were to take it from you? Beloved, that is the thing he may remove from you if you were unrepentant. Don't be fooled into thinking whatever gifts and pleasures that we enjoy from his hand today are promised tomorrow if we hold them as the untouchable idol. The purpose of it is not just to inflict a wound, though, but to draw us to a point of complete reliance and dependence on him. Repentance, in other words. It's designed to turn our whole hearts and our minds to delight in God and count him is our one and only hope in life and death. Remember, everything under the sun is passing. It is fleeting, but God himself is not. This is what leads David to say, surely every man is Havel, vanity, vapor. He is here today and gone tomorrow. You and I, Havel, Despite the popular message of our culture and even the whole world, we are not all that special, beloved. We are fickle, frail creatures whose hearts and minds are often in the wrong place for the wrong reasons. Our affections are far too often placed in our creaturely comforts, but those things which bring us even more quickly to the grave. And our delight far too often is in the sin we know destroys, not just others, but us. More to the point, though, even if all that's not true of us, and I mean in the sense where we are walking in righteousness, we are like the grass. We are like the flowers of the field. We grow quickly and flourish, and yet just as quickly as we came up, we grow frail and fade. We are but a blip on the radar of world history, but especially of eternity. The point of recognizing this and accepting this is not just to wallow in despair. That's not even the point at all. The point in recognizing that we are vanity, that life is vanity, is that we find ultimate meaning and satisfaction only in God. 
David recognizes this here. He says, life brings no ultimate meaning. Our pursuits, our glory, our renown brings no ultimate meaning. Our riches, our possession brings no ultimate meaning. Even plunging ourselves into the fleeting pleasures of sin brings nothing but pain. It brings nothing, in other words, but continued dissatisfaction. If you're wondering why life is seemingly meaningless, and we've all had that thought at times, right? Why all the things that we desire never quite remove that feeling of emptiness, even when we get our hands on them. The reason is incredibly simple. It's Havel. It's vanity. It's a mere vapor. It's not designed to bring lasting happiness. Look around you. The things we all own break down. We have entire industries built around that. Your house goes out of style. Your car rusts. Your relationships are a constant struggle. Your money comes and goes. Your health and looks will fail you. Some of you will die young. Some of you will die old with much regret. Many of us will simply spin our wheels at trying to accomplish all that we desire to have it stripped away from us. But beloved, every single one of us will go to the grave. Nothing in this life will come with us. Nothing. Naked we came into the world from our mother's womb. Naked we shall return to the earth. And few will even remember us. Even men who have left the quote-unquote greatest legacy are but a, a line in the history books that most people don't read. So what's the point of life then? Well, David's first answer is just as we've seen, fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, remember your creator in the days of your youth and honor him to the day you die. Love him, trust in him. Let nothing in this fleeting life take captive your heart. His second answer, which we now see in the final two verses, is rejoice. Now you might be asking, well, how in the world do you expect me to rejoice after you just preached a sermon for 45 minutes, essentially, on the vanity of life? Well, the reason for this is beautifully simple as well. He shows us the true love of God actually enables us to have the fullness of joy that life brings, no matter how short or long we may have. In other words, he actually says it's good and right to enjoy life. It's just never going to be that thing which brings you ultimate meaning and purpose, especially in those dark and dismal days. Notice what he says in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Well, David's cry here to the Lord is, Beautifully simple, bring relief and end my suffering. The reason he also gives is quite simple. He's just a stranger. He's just a sojourner in this life. At the heart of his plea, he recognizes he's just passing through. He lives on borrowed time. He says, I breathe borrowed air. I live on borrowed land. All that I have comes from the hand of the Father who has given it. And then he says, this is the case for all his fathers, meaning Every single man that came before him, this too was their fate. They were here, but now they're gone. 
and I am departing as well. I'm just passing through. This is a humility of a man who's simply recognized he is but a man and God is God. But he's not being self-deprecating at this point. He's not simply saying he's one of the people who will come and go. He is saying he is a sojourner with God himself. That makes all the difference in the world. When you read that, you might be tempted to look at it as if he's saying that God doesn't know him. He's a stranger with God. But the opposite is what's actually in mind here. He says God, in fact, does know him and does love him. And God has made covenant with him. He's appealing to this very fact. And he's asking that God would simply honor that covenant. He's a stranger with God. There's an aspect where David is longing for God's special care here on earth. If you remember when God gave the Israelites the law, built into it is how they must treat the foreigner, right? They're to give them equity. They're to treat them with all the provisions of the law. They're to show them kindness and show them love in the promised land. So in one sense, he's simply saying, Lord, would you treat me as you demand I treat the foreigner? In another sense, though, he's asked or he's looking or longing for his true home. He knows he is just a foreigner or just a stranger, just a passerby, in God's world. He's quickly fading from this life to the next, and so he recognizes, in other words, this world is not my home. My treasures are not stored up here. I do not delight myself in the things which fade. I do no longer desire to rebel. All of these things are vanity. But Lord, I I have no idea how much time I have left. And so he asks for something rather wonderful in verse 13, splendidly wonderful. Turn your gaze from me, that I may smile again. Before I depart and I am no more. He doesn't know if his sickness will carry him to the grave. And so he simply asks for mercy. He asks for the Lord to let up on him a bit so he can enjoy whatever time he has left. His point here is not a call then to pursue all the things he said were vanity. He still recognizes his life, his pursuits, his wealth, everything else on this earth will bring him no ultimate meaning or fulfillment. He knows he will still have enemies. He will still have hardships and sufferings in this life. He knows none of his problems are going to be magically whisked away because, or even if God removes his hand of punishment from him. What what was he saying then? He's he's calling or recognizing there's an immense amount of joy to be had in the minutia of life, but a true joy. Like a tourist, he's traveling through this life and his desire is to simply rejoice in God's goodness and in his kindness and all the creative glory that God has shown us. Beloved, think of the simple joy of good food and good company and good drink. Think of the simple joy of God's beauty as it's revealed in all of creation. There is nothing like flowers after a harsh winter. There's nothing like the fragrance of fresh rain after a long drought. There's nothing quite like laying in a field and simply marveling at the grandeur of the cosmos as you simply give thanks for the the good pleasures. Think of the joys of children. The great big belly laughs as you tickle them the pleasures of seeing them grow into a fine young man or woman who honors the Lord, the delight of them marrying off and having babies. And even if they don't honor the Lord, there's still much delight 
in having kids. Every child's a blessing. It says, even though life is brutal and all of the simple joys we have might be tainted with this reality of sin, let me smile. Is there not much to rejoice in, beloved? At the end of your days, whether they are long or short, if your true unfailing hope is in God himself, there is so much to smile over. I think of conversations I've had with parents. They're filled with regret over choices that were made. They're watching their children just destroy their lives one little bit at a time. I think of others who are ravaged by disease. Even the simple tasks are hard. I think of others who got into a marriage thinking everything is going to be rosy and splendid, and then they find out it's hard. It's hard, hard work. I know men and women who are just weary with the seemingly endlessness and thankfulness of a career or of just plodding faithfully one foot after the next day after day. I think of even more people who've been betrayed. They've been sinned against in incredibly devastating ways. They've been manipulated, abused, reviled, mocked, slandered, and more. I think of those who made a, just a choice at one point. They never imagined that that would bring them all the way over here. They know it's sin. And yet, those consequences they know will never be taken away. But if you are in Christ, beloved, none of that must consume you. Lord, would you let me smile? If you set your eyes upon the one who stands above everything under the sun, you can have much, much joy as you yet live under the sun. Your life does not have to be one of constant regret and looking back at all of the evil. It could be one of much joy and simple acknowledgement of the faithfulness of God in the midst of it all. You may be transient. You may have life that is but a vapor, Life itself may be filled with futility, and yet you can ask the Lord to just give you a smile. If you are not in Christ, they'll recognize that this life, though filled with many good things, will fail you. It will ultimately fail. The great equalizer of all men is the grave. And when that day comes, no matter how much Life has been great. No matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter how much we have accomplished, we will look back at our lives with regret. We will see the true futility and frailty of it all. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look to Christ. It is only with Christ that true fulfillment and meaning and even joy in this life can be found. And when I say look to Christ, what I mean by that is quite simple. We are sinners. God promises wrath to the sinner, and the only way to be free from the wrath of God is to trust in Jesus. There's nothing else in all of creation that will deliver us or save us when that wrath comes. It is only God that saves us or can save us. It is only through faith. It is only a set of truths of what we call the gospel. And what I mean by the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He took the wrath of God in our place. And by that, he took the punishment we deserve. In other words, he was our substitute. He took our place. And yet he did not merely die. 
He rose on the third day, proving that he truly had the power to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And even more than this, that we too can find eternal life. Death, sin, Satan, disease, all of this will go away one day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And so scripture says, place all of your confidence in this one, that if he is your one and true and your only hope, no matter what evils may come in this life, that is an unfailing and unfading hope and joy. Though you may look out and see the world is vanity in many ways, that vanity cannot touch your soul. And what I mean specifically by that is that you actually have much meaning and purpose in Christ if you profess and confess hope in him and joy in your salvation. Everything else is going away. Everything under the sun is vanity. But that which is above the sun is not. Beloved, God God is the one thing that will never prove to be vanity. The one thing. But if you don't believe any of that, this life is the best you've got. And that will be vanity in the end. Mere Havel, a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. But in Christ there is joy and life eternal, never ending. Never ending. No sin, no sickness, no pain, no misery. Every tear wiped from your eye. Every battle scar looked upon and made in glory. Every bit of it will be sheer bliss, unadulterated joy forevermore. But in the here and now, you might have hardship, but you can still have much joy in the midst of that because your hope is unfading and eternal because it is in Christ alone. It is in God alone, not in this life. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for your people here today. I thank you especially that even though life is fraught with this reality of vanity, that it is passing, that it is transient, that we have a set number of days, that you know those days. You were not surprised by any of it. You have sovereignly given us every bit of it. And so I pray that for your people here, especially those struggling under the weight of sin, especially those struggling under the weight of sickness, the weight of hardship, that you would simply allow them to take much stock and joy in all that you have given us. May they smile. May they look upon your creation and in those simple joys of life that you have given us in the midst of dark and evil days and give thanks. But may you ever and always point them back to their Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom all honor and glory and praise are due, knowing that even if this life is robbed of us, that we go swiftly into the next in which there is nothing in creation that will, for one, bring us misery or pain, but for two, there is nothing that will remove us from the joy and fellowship of our Creator. We thank you that you are so kind to us, 
that as mere sinners, we know we do not deserve these gifts and good things that you've given us, but that through Christ, we can actually have them. And so I pray that for those who do not believe your gospel, that you would continue to work within their hearts and show them the truth of this, call them to faith and repentance in Christ, instill within them a desire to follow you, let them see the vanity of life, the transient nature of their own lives, but the eternal hope in Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.